Here with me for my maiden voyage on the Off Message podcast is none other than the most on-message politician, perhaps in Washington, D.C., the representative of Louisiana's 1st Congressional District and the House Majority Whip, Steve Scalise. Mr. Scalise, welcome to the program. Tim, great to be with you. Uh, congratulations. And uh, hopefully this this launches you into, you're going to be like a household name all across the country now. Let's hope so, <laughs> man. Welcome to Off Message. I'm Tim Alberta. It's a real privilege to take over the hosting duties for this podcast, and I promise I won't screw it up too badly. As the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine, I am tasked with writing deep, nuanced, unhurried feature stories. And to do that, I have lots of deep, nuanced, unhurried conversations with sources and subjects along the way. Some of the salty language and sports gossip aside, I'm confident that those interviews will translate nicely to this new medium. And don't worry, we'll try to keep the F-bombs and box scores to a bare minimum. Ultimately, it's my hope to broaden the mission of Off Message and take these conversations in a new direction, focusing not just on the newsmakers themselves, but on the people who elect them. Washington is hopelessly disconnected from the rest of America, and one way to bridge that gap is to make sure we're listening to voters, not just talking to them. Stay tuned for more on that front. For now, however, with just weeks until the midterm elections, a potential pivot point for the country, politically and otherwise, I wanted to bring you an interview with someone whose future hinges on the results of November the 6th, someone who has become a household name for reasons they never expected, and someone who could potentially become the next Speaker of the House. That someone is Congressman Steve Scalise. It's a bit of an ironic beginning to my off-message tenure, as Scalise is quite possibly the most on-message politician I have ever covered, someone whose every word is wrapped in caution and calculation. That's especially true these days. Having established himself as a top lieutenant in Donald Trump's Republican Party, and with a potential promotion looming after the midterm elections, Scalise can't afford to alienate any Republicans on either end of Pennsylvania Avenue. I first got to know Scalise in 2012, when he won an upset victory to become chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which for decades had served as home base for the conservative movement on Capitol Hill. That is, before the hardline House Freedom Caucus spun off into a smaller, more ideologically charged unit. I will never forget a member of then-Speaker John Boehner's staff predicting to me back then that Scalise would end up climbing his way into the House Republican leadership ranks. It wasn't that Scalise was the sharpest policy mind or the smoothest talker or the most telegenic fellow on Capitol Hill. What made him stand out was his organization and his discipline. And sure enough... Within a few years, Scalise was elected Majority Whip, the third-ranking member of the House Republican leadership. With Speaker Paul Ryan now retiring, Scalise is poised to move into the position of Majority Leader. And if Kevin McCarthy can't corral the votes needed to replace Ryan, Scalise will be the odds-on favorite to become the Speaker of the House. That is, if Republicans can keep the House majority, a dubious proposition at best. Of course, Steve Scalise is noteworthy for other reasons. He was nearly killed last summer when a gunman opened fire at the Republican congressional baseball team's practice, hemorrhaging so much blood that doctors believed he was within moments of death when he arrived at the hospital. After months of surgeries and physical therapy and grueling rehabilitation, Scalise received a hero's welcome last September when he returned to Capitol Hill for the first time. It was one of the few feel-good moments we've had in Washington in recent years. 
I sat down with Scalise in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he was set to headline a fundraiser for one of his fellow members of Congress. I wanted to start our conversation by talking about his continued recovery from the shooting, but there was a more timely matter he wanted to discuss. So we were just talking about Drew Brees, quarterback for your beloved New Orleans Saints, breaking the the all-time passing yards record in the NFL on Monday night. And it turns out you were at the game at the Superdome Monday night as the Saints dismantled the Washington Redskins. <laughs> so here's my question for you. Obviously, that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You were there with your, your son. You got to share that with him. Drew Brees is a guy who's undersized, not the biggest arm, always sort of been overlooked, and certainly at the expense of the bigger names like Tom Brady and, and, and Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning. Who would you say is the Drew Brees of the United States Congress, who is a guy who gets none of the attention, none of the acclaim, but very quietly is one of the superstars in that building. I, w- I would say, you know, after me, of course, but um, no, it was, it, what a special night. And, and just, to, I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, but uh, I, like you said, I did get to take my nine-year-old son, Harris, into the game, and uh, it's only a second NFL game, and he got to watch real history. I mean, you know, Drew Brees passing both Brett Favre and then just, about another 30 yards later past Peyton Manning to become the all-time passing leader. What a, uh, what a special moment. And, and he probably doesn't realize as much now how big of a deal it is, but later he will. And Drew is such a wonderful person in the community, does so much back home. I, I would say, you know what I mean, this has a personal touch for me, but I would say Congressman Brad Wenstrup from Ohio, just a, a hard worker, kind of understated. Uh, you don't see him on national press a lot, uh, but – I didn't know so many of the things in his background until he literally saved my life after the shooting. And, and he does it in a humble way. Uh, you wouldn't know talking to him, just all the things. I mean, he served in Iraq, uh, saved so many lives there as a combat surgeon, uh, as a doctor by trade, and, and then ultimately decided to run for Congress just because he, uh, you know, he wanted to help people. And he just works hard. He just got on the Ways and Means Committee and wasn't the the first pick or the you know the person expected to get on the Ways and Means Committee when he uh, when he got that open seat and uh, and so I, I would say in a lot of ways he he's got that real unassuming uh, humble but just servant leader type of personality and by the way for listeners acclimating to my hosting style you're going to have to get used to a little bit of sports talk at the top <laughs> and we'll otherwise I can't keep my sanity but I did answer your question and, you did uh, you bought yourself a little bit of time but Brad yeah. Winstrup as the Drew Brees of Congress I'm sure he'll be honored so let me turn serious for a minute just past the one year mark of your return to Congress following the assassination attempt, uh, the shooting at the baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia, during the congressional baseball practice. Obviously, you came very close to death. And then you returned uh, very triumphantly in September 2017. It was a very emotional scene uh, for everybody involved in Congress. I wonder, as you look back on that entire episode, has anything given you a different perspective with the distance you now have from it? Uh, Well, it was just a just to be able to go back to work was such an, an unbelievably special feeling and, and emotional for me. I mean, you know, the emotions of, of going through the rehab and learning how to walk again and wondering if I was even going to be able to do some of those basic things like walking or going back to work and then to be able to do it. Um, but when I came back, I, I do think one of the things I realized pretty quickly afterwards is that my national profile had risen tremendously. You know, it, it gave me the ability, I think, to help 
uh, convey the messages that I've always conveyed to a much broader audience nationally. And I think I realized that, you know, when I would maybe give a speech on something or send out a press release, all of a sudden more and more people were covering it uh, because they knew who I was from the shooting. You're a household name all of a sudden. Yeah. So, you know, it it does, I think, give you a heightened awareness that you have a higher platform and and you have an ability to use that for good. Obviously, we think mostly about post-traumatic stress as it would relate to the military or to, to police officers, law enforcement, things of that nature. I'm wondering... Do you find yourself experiencing any sort of post-traumatic stress? Are there loud noises that, that, that will frighten you? Do, do you find yourself different in any way because of that experience in a sort of uh, mental or physical way? Um, thank God I, I really don't. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the support structure around me, my family, my friends. Um, you know, in those months I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for three and a half months. And you have a lot of time to reflect on things, but also to talk through those things. And, and, you know, I talked to my security detail, uh, Dave Bailey and Crystal Griner, who were both my two Capitol Police security detail officers who were with me that day and who saved all of us. I mean, true heroes that that not only saved my life, but saved the lives of all the other people that were on that ball field that morning. Uh, and, and they were both shot themselves. And so, you know, as Crystal was going through the, the rough, rough rehabilitation she went through with, uh, you know, a pretty devastating wound she had to her ankle. I mean, just blew through her ankle. You know, Dave had an injury to his foot that he he worked through, and he's back 100% on my team, and I'm glad to have him. Crystal's not quite 100%, but almost there. And uh, we talked a lot in the hospital about each of our experiences, because I'm laying on the field. I, I couldn't really, I never saw the shooter. I didn't see all the perspectives that they saw. And, you know, they're in the middle of a gun battle, and uh, and ultimately took down a shooter when they were heavily outgunned, uh, you know, and, and exhibiting incredible bravery. But we talked through our different experiences and emotions, and I think help that helped me resolve it a lot. And, and going back out to the ball field when I when I got better and was able to get discharged from the hospital, I wanted not long after to get back to the ball field just to go by myself with actually with David Bailey, and um, you know we went back to second base and just kind of. He showed me where the shooter was because, again, I never saw the shooter and he did. So he was showing me where the shooter was. Wow. And, you know, we're looking at first base where he's in a gunfight with the shooter and he's standing. you just kind of isolated on an island at first base with no protection. And the shooter's kind of hiding uh, pigeonhole behind this cinder block uh, dugout behind third base. And you're just thinking to yourself, you know, this, this is a special person that – would put their life at risk to save me and, and everybody else out there. And so just to see that and you know, kind of confront it and go back out to the baseball field and play again with my colleagues and try out for my position at second base and ultimately be able to go play the year, the year anniversary of the shooting. Uh, they held the game again at, at national ballpark and to be able to walk out there on that ball field a year later. Wow. What, what a special moment in a moment that really helps you look back and go, look how far, We've come, and uh, a lot of hard work went into it. But you, you kind of confront all the demons, and to me, fortunately, been able to exercise those demons by just facing them head on and working through them. And not only walk out there on that field, but <laughs> field the very first ball of the game. You're you're in at second base, and you've got some assistance out on the field. And the first play of the game, the first ball that's put into play is hit. Right to you at second base, which, by the way... Nothing where, is supposed to happen, by the way. When when two right-handers are up, 
nothing's supposed to come to second base. And the whole time, you know, I'd gone to, to a few practices once I was able to get back out there. And, you know, when they were hitting ground balls to me, I could get everything that came right to me. Right. You know, unfortunately in baseball, the balls don't come right to you. So if, if Roger Williams, who's our, our, our coach, if he would hit a ball, maybe like even two feet to my left or right, I couldn't get to it. I just didn't have uh, the lateral mobility. And so I'd work with my physical therapist. And then I go out for the game and, you know, I think it was more symbolic that they let me start as a nice gesture, but it's like, okay, Scalise, we're going to put you out there for a couple of batters and then we're taking you out of the game. And uh, I was just worried. I didn't want to hurt the team. And I'm standing there and literally the very first pitch, Mark Walker throws the, the first pitch and Raul Ruiz, a Democrat from California, was the batter. And he just cracks the thing. I mean, comes right towards second base, really hard ball. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> I mean, you didn't get the memo. You're supposed to leave me alone. But uh, anyway, so I said, okay, well, now i got to try to make the play. I mean, it wasn't that far from me. It was a little to my right. So I, I go down and, and I backhanded the ball and my momentum takes me to the ground. And luckily, uh, you know, as I kind of fell to one knee, I caught the ball backhanded with my glove. So at that point I said, well, now I better make the throw. And I could see him running down the first baseline. So I pulled the ball out and I made the throw and sure enough, you know, boom, throw him out and the whole place goes wild. And right out of the corner of my eye, I see Jeff Duncan, who's playing shortstop, come running towards me. And the first thing I think of is I better get up or else I'm going to get dog right. <laughs> And so I get up and wow, I mean, just a moment of euphoria. I mean, I think for all of us, it was like, wow, look how far we've come. We've, you know, we've gone from a day where it could have been the worst tragedy maybe in political history uh, for, for members of Congress, at least, uh, to a day of euphoria that we, you know, we were able to look this in the eye and, you know, the bad guys didn't win. Sure, some catharsis. Now, I know you don't want to be defined by that event. So you are right. back in the saddle now, back to work, energetic, trying to whip the votes. Now, we should state for the listeners to make clear that whip is not just a noun. It is often a verb. Your job is to, to whip the vote, to try and get your members in line, to try and figure out what the count is. And, and my question for you having covered the House Republican leadership for many years, it strikes me that your job has to be a hell of a lot easier now with Donald Trump <laughs> in the White House than it was with the Democrat in the White House, because a lot of your more conservative members uh, were, were much trickier to get in line when it was having them decide with John Boehner or just with Paul Ryan. But now with Donald Trump in the White House, he is such an imposing force. It seems like a lot of these guys are, are easier to bring under your wing, how would you how would you describe the difference between whipping votes under a Democratic administration versus whipping votes with Donald Trump as president? It's a hundred and eighty degree difference in a lot of ways. Uh, it still is not easy. I, I wish just because hey we got a Republican president, every Republican automatically supports the bill. Uh, doesn't quite work that way. Uh, but that's the fun part of the job. I mean, to me, you know, every whip is different. Every whip. Uh, has a different style if you look back throughout history. My style's always been more of a coalition builder. And so when we're doing things like repeal and replace of Obamacare, you know, President Trump was strongly supportive of the bill, but yet we had a lot of work to build that coalition because there were a lot of Republicans that weren't for the bill pretty vocally in some cases until we got the final version of the bill. And, and ultimately there were changes, and my job was to pull them together and you know say, okay, what what else do we need to do to get the bill put in a way where you can support it, but also where those changes that you want don't take away from the votes we already have. And that's the real tricky part. I mean, everybody's got their own ideas that might sound great to them, but if your great idea 
brings you five votes in an exchange, you lose 10 votes. It's not a good idea. It's got to be a net positive to the bill if you're building a coalition. And especially you don't have any Democrats. You know, my job is to work with the speaker and the majority leader to make sure that we get the votes there to to pass the bill and to pass good policy. And, and I think we've passed some really important good policy working with President Trump. And he's been very good about working with Congress. You know, and I see a different side of him than maybe a lot of other people get to see. But I see a guy who's very focused on wanting to get big things done for the country, not just to put a skin on the wall, but to help the middle class have more money in their pocket, to create more jobs, to rebuild industries. And, and I think that's the ultimate test is, you know, ultimately are people better off now than they were two years ago in this case? And clearly the answer is yes. Now, the House Freedom Caucus had for several years uh, been sort of the primary intra-party opposition. Some of the members were, were the toughest for you guys to get on, on any number of different votes. And it, what's really striking to me is that for years, some of these members, even before they formed the Freedom Caucus, uh, there was once an entity known as the Republican Study Committee, which you were the chairman <laughs> and of. And still the strongest <laughs> and uh, most vocal a conservative wing of the of the party. Yeah, before there were, before there was well a over freedom 150 caucus. members. Yeah, right? there was a Republican Study Committee. If you think about some of the prominent alumni now who chaired that group, you had Mike Pence, Vice President of the United States. You have Steve Scalise, House Majority Whip. You have Tom Price, who, if he had used Expedia.com, would still be the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Who am I missing? Jim Jordan. Jeb, Jim Jordan, founding founder chairman of, of, the, of the House Jeb Freedom Henseling, Caucus. Jeb Henseling, outgoing Finan chairman of Financial That's Services exactly Committee. Right. So, and it, and it strikes me that you. You have, it's still a strong influence in our conference. Sure, and you have any number of them. And the largest group and block of members in our conference and very influential. The largest caucus in Congress. Mark Walker's though. coming off of a really good tenure as chairman. So yeah. I think, you know, again, I want to see a strong chairman continue to, uh, to stay in that position because I think there's still a really important place for uh, the Republican Study Committee, and it's it's really the, the bedrock and foundation of the conservative movement in Congress. But the fact that the House Freedom Caucus wound up spinning off from the Republican Study Committee spoke to this dynamic you had within the Republican Party, really from 2010 to 2016, in which there was, you know, we, we read, and, and, and in my case, we wrote ad nauseum about the Republican Civil War and a lot of the ideological brinksmanship that was occurring within the Republican Party. And it seems as though Donald Trump's first his his nomination as the Republican presidential nominee, but then his general election victory has, for all intents and purposes, sort of squashed those old ideological beefs within the Republican Party. And now, rather than conservative versus moderate or Tea Party versus establishment, the divide within the Republican Party today seems to be Trump or never Trump. Are you with the president or are you not with the president? Is that fair from where you're sitting? It's not. It's not the entire picture, but it definitely shows you that uh, now that President Trump's in place, we have a president we can work with. Look, President Obama didn't want to work with anyone in Congress, uh, Republican or Democrat. I mean, you talk to Democrats in leadership and various caucuses within their conference and say, how many times did President Obama bring y'all down in the White House? And most of them will tell you really hardly ever. Uh, you know, surely on the Republican side, we didn't see that, but a lot of Democrats didn't see it either. And so we have a president, Donald Trump, who wants to work with Congress. He's brought Republicans and Democrats to, to, to the White House. And in the Freedom Caucus, I think what you're seeing is, you know, they're, they're working to try to figure out how they can be as effective as possible with a president who wants to work with them as well. And so while the Democrat Party is having, I think, the internal civil war that you were referencing, 
uh, on the Republican side. Our, our internal differences seem to get magnified more in the press. On the Democrat side, there is a lot of internal angst right now about who they are and what they're going to be because they really don't have an agenda if you look right now. They're just against Trump. And what you're describing, a party that is organized around opposition to a sitting president, is how many folks would have described the Republican Party circa, you know, 08 to 16. Certainly, John Boehner and Eric Cantor look back and say, you know, as a party, uh, so much of our organization was was rooted just in our opposition to the president rather than having sort of a coherent, forward-looking vision for what we should be as a party. And it seems now that, to your point, not only have the tables turned, but it seems as though Donald Trump's presidency has, for all intents and purposes, sort of stopped that internal bleeding in the Republican Party. It has sort of pushed aside some of those old divisions. And I wonder, is this, in your opinion, Donald Trump's Republican Party right now, period, full stop? Well, clearly he's the leader of our party and, and he's showing a direction that uh, is, is the direction that people elected him to move forward on. I mean, promises kept is a real important thing in politics. And when Donald Trump ran for office, he ran saying very specific things. And he's actually fighting to do all of those things for the people that he, he committed he would do those things for. Uh, and the highest profile, obviously, has been the Supreme Court. But look at what he's done. He put a list out. You could say that, that when the Gorsuch pick came, it was probably the best person that was on the list. And with Kavanaugh, you've got another great justice that's on the, on the court now that is, is going to be the kind, of, the kind of justice that the president said he would pick. People that actually believe in the Constitution it was written and interpret it that way to don't go there to be legislators on the bench. And, and that, that's why he was elected. Do you see Trump as a legacy figure, the kind of president who will durably, if not semi-permanently, reshape the party in his image like Reagan did? Yeah, and the country. And look, there are a lot of there are a lot of similarities in policy between Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan. I mean, it's a very much a Reagan-esque conservative agenda, if you look at it. You know, clearly, their styles are different, but at the same time, in the, in the end, you're going to be judged on your results. Look at the results, starting with the economy. Uh, you've got one of the strongest economies we've ever seen, and now as you're seeing the president confront some of the underpinning trade problems that this country has cut bad deal after bad deal, he's actually cutting better deals for America. Once we get through the trade negotiations that are going on, I think you're going to see this economy take off even more. So you talk with a lot of conservatives, though, I do, and I'm sure you do as well, who will acknowledge all of those accomplishments and who will... Admit, nice if the media did too. And who will, <laughs> oh no, but folks who will admit to to being very impressed with, with what the president has done in these first two years, but who in the next breath will still express a great deal of uneasiness with him. You talked a minute ago about style, which seems to be code for some of his rhetoric and some of his behavior. Is there anything about the president that makes you uneasy, or I guess a more direct way of asking the question, which uh, you know some folks have been asked and will continue to be asked, I, I would assume for the duration of his presidency, is you have young children. Do you view President Trump as a role model for your children? First of all, I think he is a role model in the ways that he's actually following through on his promises. Uh, the, one of the things that people don't like about politicians are the people that go out and make promises and have no intention of keeping them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of that. Uh, Donald Trump promised very specific things. He was criticized for saying, we're going to build the wall. Uh, we're still working. I, I voted to help build the wall and to put the money in place. Obviously, we don't have enough votes yet to do that. That's one of those things that hasn't been done, like repeal and replace of Obamacare, that we need to go back to. We need to help the president deliver on that promise. But the president's done his part. 
And so I think that's an important thing to be able to point and say, you know what, here's a, a person who ran for the office of president, the highest office in the land, and he promised he would do these things and he's actually doing them. And our economy is getting better. My kids now have a better chance at the American dream than they did when Barack Obama was president. Because if you look today, I mean, kids that are graduating from college today actually have jobs they can go get. They didn't have that a few years ago. So a big pivot point in the Trump presidency will be the midterm elections. And we are just a few weeks out. And I'm curious from where you're sitting today, from the conversations you have at the party committees, the numbers that you look at, what percentage chance do you give Republicans of holding on to the House of Representatives? I would give over a 50 percent chance. But clearly, there are a lot of races that are tight. I mean, it's going to be a long night, probably, because there are a lot of elections that are going to be 50-50 races. And if you look today uh, versus two weeks ago, Republicans are in a much better position because I think momentum's going our way. I think people are excited that we now have another justice on the Supreme Court. And they got to watch the Democrats literally implode and, and, and just go off the rails trying to destroy uh, Justice Kavanaugh. You feel better about your odds of keeping the House today than you did before the Kavanaugh uh, controversy erupted? I, I think it really concerned a lot of people the way it was handled by the Democrats, the way they tried to make it purely political and personal and, and tried to destroy a man's life, whether he deserved to have it destroyed or not. Uh, I think people weren't easy about that. And then you add on top of that, that the economy continues to grow and that people's lives are better. And, and this is where Nancy Pelosi, in her message, uh, she wants to be speaker again. She literally said for everybody that's out there, they got a thousand dollar bonus or that's seeing more money, real money in their paycheck today. And their utility bills are going down because we cut taxes. She called that crumbs. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back after this quick break. Now, if Republicans are to hold the House, I think the assumption is that it would be by a relatively small margin, right? If Democrats were to pick up, you know, 17 to 20 votes, they would fall just short of taking back the majority. You would be in control by a very small margin of votes. If that is the case, does Kevin McCarthy, the current majority leader, does he have the votes lined up to become speaker? I think Kevin would have the votes. I mean, if you look at it, in the end, we've got to hold the majority first. Uh, and then it's going to probably be a smaller majority. I don't think anybody's trying to make any delusions about that. But at the same time, I still think we hold the majority. And there have been smaller majorities. There was a five-vote majority that Republicans had back in the early 2000s. And they managed to get some important things done, too. So uh, you can have a functioning majority, uh, even if it's smaller. And just to be clear, if Republicans were to hold the majority, you do not plan to run against Kevin McCarthy for speaker. No, I've been very clear. I'm, I'm not running against Kevin. I'm supporting Kevin. And ultimately, we need to make sure we're focused right now on holding the House. And we are. And if the House is held by a narrow majority, if Republicans do have that narrow majority you were just talking about, boy, I have to think back to John Boehner having a cushion of 30 plus votes, Paul Ryan having a, a cushion of 20 some odd votes and how miserable their lives were as speaker. Who the hell wants to be speaker of the house with a three or a four or a five seat cushion? That just seems like an impossible, it's already an impossible job made all the more impossible. Who in their right mind would want that job? It's always a tough job. Uh, no matter who's speaker, no matter what the time is, you know, just like president is being a tough job uh, because you're always going to have tough decisions to make. The Speaker of the House is the is the leader of the House, not just of his party in the House. And so ultimately, the direction of the House is headed by the Speaker. And you don't get to just make easy decisions. 
they're tough decisions you have to make every day too. And so that's why you see that job, it, there's not a long shelf life for it, no matter who's holding it. Uh, but during that period, you have the ability to have a major impact on the direction of our country in a positive way. Talk about post-traumatic stress. You and I have both spoken with John Boehner since he retired. <laughs> he seems, seems to be a in a much better right place now, now doesn't he? He was whistling zippity doo the other day, I think, on YouTube. So, and, and just to close the loop on this, if for whatever reason Kevin McCarthy was unable to have the votes to become Speaker if Republicans hold the House, at that point, are you prepared to step in and throw your hat in the ring to become Speaker? Look, I, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Obviously, keeping the House right now is my top priority. And, you know, there'll be time for the races and who's going to run for what. Uh, but I've, I've been very clear from the beginning. My focus is on keeping the House uh, that's why I'm traveling around, helping members in tough districts raise money. Uh, I just transferred another million dollars from my campaign account into the NRCC last week so that we have the tools we need to compete against a Democrat machine where you've got the likes of Michael Bloomberg, one person alone, putting about $100 million of his own money in place to flip the House from Republican to Democrat. Uh, you got Steyer out there putting about $100 million in place to flip the House so that he can impeach Donald Trump. There's big money out there. Uh, we need to be focused on what's at hand. Otherwise, we'll be in the minority wondering about what we could have been as opposed to saying, let's focus, get the job done, and then in a couple weeks, we can start figuring out who wants to be chairman of what and titles can be handed out later. On message as always. Now, purely hypothetical here, but if you're Donald Trump and you are going to run for re-election in 2020, I've talked with some folks at the White House who have you know, noodled on this idea. Isn't there a part of you that thinks you would rather have a Democratic majority for the next two years because they give you not only the ideal foil, but as you were just you know, perhaps foreshadowing a moment ago, they would spend that two years attacking the president, potentially overreaching and helping him in his reelection cause. If you're going to have a very narrow Republican majority, why wouldn't you just as soon have a narrow or even a not so narrow Democratic majority that helps the president and provides him with the foil and the opposition he needs to energize the conservative base that rallies around him heading into 2020. Yeah, clearly I've, I've heard some of those same, you know, kind of ideas that people try to percolate about what would be better and what wouldn't. And there's two sides of that argument. Uh, but, but it really uh, kind of, I think, discounts who Donald Trump is. Donald Trump's a person who wants to get stuff done. Uh, he didn't run to play politics. He ran to shake up Washington, but more importantly, to get this country back on track. So the country, I think, is now finally headed in the right direction. And the president knows if Nancy Pelosi's speaker, the Democrats take the House, number one, all of the good progress that we've made in two short years is over. Uh, you're, you're at a status quo from there on because their agenda is going to be to resist, to delay, to drag cabinet secretaries into hearings every week, to stop them from unraveling all these radical regulations that Barack Obama put in place that were killing manufacturing jobs in America, all that's over. And it's going to be testimonies. It's going to be uh, subpoenas. It's going to be impeachment. I mean, they will move to impeachment. Some Democrat leaders have already started to indicate that. Uh, so what would impeachment look like? Uh, yeah, maybe that might mobilize the country against Democrats. But in the meantime, what a mess that would be for our country. And, and what a impediment that would be to all the progress we've made to help families that were struggling for eight years. The president doesn't want to see that. President Trump wants to keep this progress going. That all ends if Nancy Pelosi's speaker. Now, you've been very effusive in your praise for, for President Trump. And I'm 
interested to know if there are private conversations you ever have with him in which you will, you know, we read and hear a lot about folks in the administration, other leaders on Capitol Hill, members of Congress who he has relationships with, who will sort of work him privately and talk to him about, maybe maybe check yourself here, or maybe don't go quite so far there, trying to sort of rein him in a little bit. Do you ever feel the need to have those conversations with him? Look, anybody who talks to the president wants to talk to him not just about the things that are happening today, about but about the things that we want to do tomorrow. And, you know, he might want to do it this way. And, you know, if we want to do it a different way, we start talking through how to get to the same place. And we've been able to do that well. Um, if you look at trade, uh, I think he's been real clear about explaining why he's doing what he's doing on tariffs. I'm a free trade guy. I don't want to see a trade war. Um, but what the president made clear is, Look, trust me on this. I'm a negotiator. Uh, we've got some leverage, and tariffs aren't something that he wants. He went to Europe and said, we'll drop all of our tariffs if you drop yours. He doesn't want tariffs, but you noticed a lot of those European countries said, wait a minute, we want to keep our tariffs. You just drop yours. Uh, it was a one-sided deal with a lot of countries, and we had been taken advantage of, even by friends of ours. And at some point, it's, it's not healthy for any relationship if one friend is doing all the work and the other is just taken. And so he's, I think, equalizing a lot of that. But he, but we talked through what is the end game. And I think it's important to know if he's doing something that maybe we would do differently, why is he doing it? And he's explained it well. I, I think he's, he's been really good at trying to be very uh, upfront about us with the strategies that he's using. And, and frankly, it's hard to, to argue with the results. The results are actually working for America. So right what now. is the end game for the trade war specifically? Because if you talk to Republicans in those Rust Belt states you were mentioning earlier, I mean, look, Michigan, Ohio, prices Wisconsin, are higher. Pennsylvania. We're seeing it. Yeah. You're, looking, you're looking, Republicans are looking at a potential wipeout in those Rust Belt states that Trump was able to flip in 2016. You're looking at a bunch of statewide offices that have been held by Republicans, all flipping to Democratic control. And when you talk to folks in those states, in the Republican Party, they will point to the tariffs as reason 1A why they are struggling right now heading into the midterm election. So what is the end game? Well, we're already starting to see the end game. And it started in Mexico, of all places. I mean, think of all the rhetoric you saw between Donald Trump and the president of Mexico and the former president of Mexico. I mean, it had gotten pretty ugly. Uh, and then you look at uh, his his comments back and forth with the prime minister of Canada. You know, he and Trudeau went at it for a while, and very publicly. And, you know, some people said, oh, this isn't how it should be done. Well, guess what? All the years that the big diplomats who go to Paris and drink wine and talk in foreign languages. And by the way, America was getting their lunch eaten during all of those fancy conversations. President Trump maybe rubbed a few elbows sharply, but in the end, he got a better deal for America. And that's what people wanted to see. And so I think a lot of people were happy when they saw Mexico first come on. And then Canada was still trying to push back. And they realized that we were going to be going forward. If President Trump brought us a deal with Mexico and Canada didn't want to be part of it, they would have been left out. And you saw it. They didn't want to be left out. And so ultimately, they agreed to better terms for America. But these are allies of ours. What about China? But I mean, Europe, there are a lot of European allies and friends of ours that we don't have deals with either. There are a lot of Asian friends of ours that we don't have deals with. President Trump is working to get more and more deals. And then if you keep isolating and isolating against China, we're negotiating with China too. They just happen to be the worst offender in the world. And everybody else knows that. Uh, they cheat, they steal IP. Uh, they don't play by the rules, even if you've got established rules with them. Uh, no dispute resolutions. So how about we isolate all of the pressure of not just the U.S. economy, 
but of all the world's economy against China, they will have no choice but to finally come around. And if they do, it will be good for the entire world. It'll be great for America, but it's going to be great for our friends too. What if they don't? What if China doesn't blink? Well, then they're going to be isolated. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, if these other countries want to keep up barriers, make it hard for Americans to sell our products over there, and they don't have any trouble, by the way, selling their products here in America. So it's a one-way relationship. That's not fair trade. That's not free trade. So I want free trade, but that means both sides should be winners in an agreement. It shouldn't be a deal where you walk away happy and the other person walks away angry. Uh, that's not good for anybody because you're never going to deal with that person again. Now, I want to close by talking a little bit about our political climate nationally. We look at Donald Trump as being the epicenter of this hyperpolarized political environment that we're living in. But the truth is that Donald Trump in many ways is more a consequence than a cause. You, you've had this polarization tracing back to the Clinton administration, certainly the latter half of the Clinton administration, much of the George W. Bush administration, much of the Barack Obama administration. So now Donald Trump is in the middle of it, and it seems to be getting worse. Your friend Jeff Flake likes to talk about the fever, and the fever is going to break at some point, he likes to say. And I have to wonder to myself, is this really a fever, or has the body just adjusted to this higher temperature? Do you see this as a fever that is going to break, or is this the new normal? Well, we've seen for years that this is a very divided country. Uh, you know, just look election after election. It's been going back and forth, but it's been the divisions have been getting higher. The swing voters uh, as, as a percentage of the country have been getting smaller. So people kind of get more polarized into whatever corner they're picking. And then ultimately, there's a lot less room in the middle uh, where elections are ultimately decided. Um, you look at in the House. I mean, the House is probably the best reflection of where the country is. You know, we hold the majority today. Uh, we know how many seats are in a battleground right now. I mean, there's probably a good 40 to 45 House seats uh, that could go either way right now if you look at polling. Now, I think momentum's going our way right now, and I think the economy is a big part of it. Uh, but at the same time, you see the division within our country when you just look at all of these, uh, all of these seats that are the swing districts around the country, and it reflects in the House of Representatives, too. So, you know, I don't know if, if Donald Trump, I don't think he's the reason why we're a divided country. He came into a divided country as a president making some very specific promises about fixing some of the problems that were causing the division. But Trump certainly met the moment uh, in a way by exploiting some of those divisions and playing on some of the divides, some of the warfare uh, ideologically, class warfare, identity politics. He exploited those things uh, and was able to win the presidency because of it. And I wonder if you look you know, 10 to 20 years down the road. Will we be looking back on this as just sort of a hiccup where, again, the, you know, the fever got a little bit of high and then it eventually came down? Or because of the polarizing forces of talk radio and cable news and social media that seem to drive us further and further into our respective echo chambers as Americans, do you see this getting worse? If you were king for a day, what, how, what, magic, what magic wand would you wave to try and remedy this? Well, I do think that if, if you look at our country, we've gone through different pendulum swings where, you know, you, the country's never been completely unified uh, in the sense that, I mean, after September 11th, you saw a real unification where people came together and there have been inflection points like that. Um, but I mean, you can even look when, when George H.W. Bush was president, right after the Gulf War, he was at a 91 percent popularity. And, and just a few years later, he was not president. 
uh, and he was voted out of office. So the country moves around depending on what's happening in the in the country at the time. And I don't think that's going to change. I think what's important is, are we confronting the problems that the country's facing today, which are different than they were? Uh, you, you go look. I mean, I, I have an office in my office suite in the in the Capitol, in the Whip's office that Abraham Lincoln used to sit in. I mean, he, there's a fireplace right where Abraham Lincoln used to sit. That's now part of my office. Just think of the problems he had to confront. Uh, he chose to finally take on uh, the one big scar of the U.S. Constitution, and that was a never resolved slavery. And he said, I'm going to do something about it. It's time we end it. And he ultimately gave his life for it. Uh, we were a divided nation back then, much more divided than we are today. Sure, there's divisions today, but then you can look at, at different pieces and parts of our history over time where we were even more divided. You know, maybe you can find times where we were less divided, but even then it might not have lasted long. So, uh, Ultimately, when you, I think what's most important is how you express those disagreements. Uh, I think the civility is one of the things I'm concerned about. You talked about Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton just earlier this week was almost encouraging uh, some of the violence you're seeing against uh, against people based on their political views. Her, her quote was, her it. quote was, I'll read it to you. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for. That was a direct There's quote. no place for that. And that wasn't Donald Trump. That was Hillary Clinton. And, and I think you start seeing why Donald Trump was elected, not her. Uh, that's not what this country is about. This country is not about choosing when you're going to be civil and when you're going to be, uh, you know, violent. I mean, there's no place for violence in our political discourse. You can absolutely disagree with people, but you can't pick and choose who you're going to obey in terms of laws. I mean, you know, if the laws are on the books today, you can't say, well, we're going to resist and ignore the law today because we don't like the person in the White House. Uh, we don't get that luxury. That's not what elective representative democracy is about. We actually get to pick our leaders, but the day after Barack Obama was no longer president, Donald Trump was president, and they had a peaceful transition uh, of handing off power. Uh, that's how our country's always worked. It's not saying, you know, we're going to go and resist tomorrow because we don't agree with this person, so we're just going to ignore the fact that they're president. You don't get that opportunity. And it seems as though Hillary Clinton is attempting to channel some of some of the passion, some of the outrage uh, among her supporters. Maybe just she's as, mounting a comeback. She might as, be the candidate in 2020. Well, I somehow doubt that. But just as Donald Trump in 2016 at multiple rallies talked about, I'll pay your legal bills if you smack this guy around, if you punch that guy in the face, seeming quite clearly to be inciting some violence at his own rallies. And this is where I ask well, as a man I think who's that been... was in response to people who were paid, the people that were paid to go and beat up some of Donald Trump's supporters. You know, clearly you didn't want to see it go there, but it went there because they were paying people to go and, and, and attack people at Donald Trump rallies. But clearly you would agree, and I asked this to a man who, who was, again, who was shot and who very nearly died. You would agree that there is no party or ideological tribe right now that has a monopoly on some of the insanity that we are witnessing in our political system. Look, after, after the shooting at that baseball field, I was in the halls of Congress for the following few days, and for about 72 hours, there was this kumbaya atmosphere where everybody talked about, we're going to come together, and we're going to bring down the rhetoric, and, and we're going we're to calm things down here. But then it went right back to normal after those 72 hours. And I just wonder, is it really going to take another tragedy of that? 
that magnitude for us to become reflective again on how we can try to get this thing back on the rails. Well, I, I really hope it doesn't, but I've been very vocal recently that I'm concerned about the rhetoric on one side of the aisle. I mean, look, you, you can say all you want. Well, gee whiz, it's going around everywhere, but it's not. Uh, you don't see this coming from the right. When Barack Obama was president, there were a lot of his policies that I disagree with, that a lot of Republicans disagreed with. But threatening him, threatening to harass his cabinet members, threatening his life was never acceptable. And any of us on our side would speak out just as people on the left would if something like that happened. I am real concerned about the radio silence when somebody on the left threatens violence against someone on the right. And it's happening over and over again. It's not equivocal. It's not happening on both sides. It's happening on the left against people on the right. And it's well documented. And it's got to stop. And leaders on both sides need to call it out. Now, one of the reasons it seems as though Congress and our political system more broadly is incapable of tackling some of these bigger existential challenges is that you have a lack, a fundamental lack of relationships now uh, across the aisle the way that you used to have. And, and it might sound nostalgic and a little bit uh, a little bit corny, but you listen to some of the old timers talk about how Republicans and Democrats used to go to dinner together every night and how they really knew one another. Now, you have a very close friend across the aisle, Cedric Richmond from Louisiana. You guys go back to your days in the state house together in Louisiana. And Cedric Richmond, not only a Democrat, but a very progressive Democrat and the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus. I wonder, when you look around Congress today, do you worry about the lack of cross-aisle, cross-party relationship building? And is there something that can be done not just in the abstract, but something tangible, something concrete that can be done to encourage more of those relationships, more of those personal friendships that may transcend the ideological or the partisan. I'd like to see more of it. And, you know, that with Cedric and I's relationship goes back to our days in the state house, where you would still have ideological differences with people. But afterwards, you would go out to dinner with your friends and new friends. You would you would run into people you didn't know and you'd get to know them better. And and you'd build real relationships. And, you know, while we on the Republican side and the Democrats on their side do a lot of things together individually, I think it would be healthy for us to do more things. Uh, pick, you know, almost like a buddy system. Uh, you know, you go pick somebody on the Democrat side. We all, we all work with people on the Democrat side. Go pick somebody that you, you really have a lot in common with personally, you might not have politically, and just get to know them better. And, and I think that would be it would be better to really understand where the other side's coming from. And it's not going to change your philosophy, but at least your way of dealing with them. Because I do think the most important thing is, I mean, friends sit around their own kitchen table and you know, husbands and wives don't agree with each other on every issue, uh, but they don't call each other names and throw things at each other either. And that's why you're able to have a dialogue and get through it. And I think we need to do more of that because the more you get to know somebody, at least while you can respect their differences, you're not going to demonize them because of their differences. And I think that's what, what really is at, at heart here is respect people's differences because that's what makes our country great and rich and special and unique is that we can express differences. We settle them at the ballot box and then we move on. All right. I'll get you out of here on this. Another Democrat who you've become friendly with, you were telling me, is James Carville, the <laughs> raging Cajun. <laughs> from Louisiana, the famed Democratic political consultant. And before we went on the air, you shared with me 
your James Carville impersonation. Oh my! And I, and I hope <laughs> and I hope you will be generous enough to share it with our listeners. At the risk of ending my political career, ask Elise. You know, you know, you you good out there on the Republican side, but you guys are all wrong. You know, and at least you root for the LSU Tigers like me. But boy. When are you guys going to finally get it right? Why don't y'all just give more money to the poor people and why don't you just create more welfare, Scalise? <laughs> and, with, and with that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. All apologies to James Carver. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was pretty good. That was pre- pretty good. He's quite the character back home. Well, I will, I will make sure to call him for comment before this goes live. <laughs> He's going to give his viewpoint on this too now. Steve Scalise, congressman from Louisiana's 1st District and the House Majority Whip, potentially the next House Majority Leader or Speaker or Minority Whip or Minority Leader. Who knows? We'll find out shortly Let's after this November's elections. Vote thank, Republican. Thank you so much for being with us, Mr. Scalise. Yeah, great being with you. So, how did he do? Will Steve Scalise be the next Speaker of the House? How did I do? Will I be allowed to continue hosting this podcast? Let me know. Drop me a line with your thoughts questions, comments, concerns, and suggestions for what you'd like to hear more of in the future at talberta at politico.com. A big thank you to our producer, Zach Stanton, and to our executive producer, Dave Shaw, and a special thank you to Katie Blackley for helping us out this week with our recording in Pittsburgh. If you like Off Message, and if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please do us a big favor and leave a review. It better be positive. If it's negative, don't leave a review. Seriously, though, all these reviews are going to help us find new listeners for the show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Off Message. See you then.